Please be seated. Thanks, man. So we're just about wrapping up our journey through John's epistle, the epistle of 1 John. And we're in 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Oh, and if you have kids, that any, any kids who are going to children's church, sorry about that, this is, this is your window, otherwise you'll be trapped. I would advise you to go. This is going to be long. Believe me, all the, all the big people here wish they could go too. <laughs> but um, we're going through 1 John chapter 5, and uh, it's, a, it's a book about the Christian life, about ex- living out our faith and exercising God's love towards one another and what that means and how that works. And, and uh, he's just wrapping things up with some concluding ex- exhortations here in uh, 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, then we know that we have what we have asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sins do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone who is born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come, has given us his understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God, and he is eternal life. This is God's word for God's children this morning. So what I want to talk about today is something I think we all struggle with. I know we all struggle with, and it's the struggle for confidence. And we all use different things and look for different things that are going to make us feel confident in whatever context we find ourselves in. Sometimes we use people and we find ourselves, we pursue relationships with people that make us feel confident because we're connected to them. Or sometimes we buy stuff because if we look a certain way, if we can drive a certain car, if we can live in a certain neighborhood, then we'll feel a little better about ourselves. We rest on our strengths and sometimes our abilities to give us confidence in every area of life. Uh, Because, you know, when we're lacking in confidence, that's when we get a little desperate. And sometimes it's desperation for confidence that enables, that that kind of forces us or, or moves us to to uh, do destructive and dysfunctional things. We do things with money. We become needy in relationships because we're lacking confidence. We get compulsive about work because we're, we're insecure about our position. Uh, you know, in some parts of Texas and some parts of Jersey City, people feel more confident if they're carrying a gun because we just need something to cover for our sense of vulnerability. Because really one of the things that's the, at the root of a lot of our destructive behavior, I think, is a lack of confidence, a feeling of vulnerability. And uh, 
I, I would even say this, that you don't really understand yourself until you understand what are the things that you're doing in your life to compensate for your sense of incompetence. You know, look at your life and what are the, what are the things that you do, the things that you work on, the things that you hold on to, 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 to kind of overcome your sense of incompetence, of, of your lack of confidence. Well, the Bible says one of the things the gospel offers to all of us is a basis for confidence that transcends all of our weakness, all of our vulnerabilities, and all of our fears. And that's one of the results of having the gospel in our life is we have a transcendent confidence that's no longer dependent on our income or our relationships or our possessions or how physically strong we are, something, something like that. But it's... It's, uh, it's based wholly on our, our, our experience of the grace of God and our knowledge that God's power is with us and behind us. And, and that's significant because then we're not compensating for a weakness, but we're finding ourselves fully restored. And so in this passage, I want to show you four reasons, four, four grounds for Christian confidence. And first is the confidence of hope. John here gives us the purpose for the whole letter, and it was simply this. He says, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. The purpose of this book, the purpose of Jesus coming, the, the basis, the purpose for, uh, for the gospel ultimately is to give us the confidence that we would have eternal life. You know, it's a universal question. As long as humans have existed, there's been this question, what happens to us after we die? What is the eternal significance of our life? Because everybody, regardless of our religious background, and regardless of what continent we're from, regardless of what worldview we're raised in, there's this fear of death, this question, what is it that lies beyond the grave for us? And that has nagged and terrified people as long as people have been in existence. As uh, Hamlet put it, there's that undiscovered country from which no traveler returns. And we're all worried about what we might find there. And what I've found, you know, an interesting question to ask people is, what do you think is going to happen to you after you die? Or why, why do you think you're, you you're going to go to heaven when you die? Why? And you know what everybody says, at least Americans, what they all say is, well, I'm a good person. I haven't done anything bad, so why shouldn't I? As if it's something we're all entitled to. And the gospel tells us something else. The gospel tells us, well, we're not good people, but God is gracious. And the reason I can have hope of eternal life is not because of what I might have done with my life, but because of what Jesus did for me. Not what I might have given over the course of my life, but the fact that Jesus gave his life for me. Not because I sacrificed a lot for the good in my life, but because Jesus sacrificed himself for me. Not because I accomplished a lot that was significant in my life, but because Jesus accomplished my redemption on the cross. And so the gospel gives us a, a whole other basis for hope and confidence in this life and hope and confidence in the life to come. And when we have that, then we can deal with the junk that this life 
throws at us, we can deal even with the threats and the insecurity that we carry because we know of where this life is leading. Our hope is grounded in him. It's grounded in our union with Christ. If you look at verse 20 here, he says, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. Ultimately, our hope is grounded that we are in him who is true. We are in Christ, and that's, that gives us a basis for confidence. I like the way 2 Corinthians chapter 5 puts this. He says, Paul's talking about life after death, and he says, Therefore, we're always confident, and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, because we live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and we would pre prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. See, Basically, for all of us, life is like a harrowing movie. You know, it's, sometimes it's a drama, sometimes it's a tragedy, sometimes it's a thriller, sometimes it's just a horror show. But, you know, as we go through life, we get a little bit of all of these things. And, uh, you know, but, but as we live our life, it's a movie that we see and we go through the ups and downs, the drama and the horror and the difficulties and, and the romance and all that other stuff. But we know how it's going to end. We know how it's going to result. We know that in the end we're going to live happily ever after for all eternity. And so it's like watching a movie, watching a drama, when you already know how the resolution is going to have. You don't get quite as tense. You don't get quite as worried. You don't get quite as wrapped up in it because you know how everything works out. So the New Testament is essentially a big spoiler alert for all the drama and all the horror in all of our life. Because Jesus died, Jesus rose again and conquered death. And because of that, one day we will rise. So we have hope, and that hope is the basis of our confidence. But the second thing I want to show you is the confident prayer that we have. Look at verse 14. He says, this is the confidence we have when we approach God. If we ask anything according to his will... He hears us, and we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, then we know that we will have what we asked of him. You know, I've noticed that just like everybody believes in eternal life, everybody believes in prayer. You know, everybody wants prayer when they're, you know, well, like, like someone has said, there's no atheists in foxholes. When we're going through a hard time, when someone's going into surgery, when somebody is, is facing a, a a deep difficulty. They want everybody to pray for them, regardless of their religion, regardless of their creed, regardless of their background, because, hey, somebody's prayer's got to be answered. Everybody believes in prayer, but the question is, how do we pray? How do we dare approach God and ask for stuff? You know, through the history of humanity, most people were terrified to approach God. You know, the history of of religion is mostly people coming up with difficult things they would do to God, do for God, or offer to God so that they might possibly make their requests to God. And, you know, the, the pagan religions through the years and, and, and around the world would think of things they could sacrifice to God in order to earn the right to approach God and make their requests known. And if they didn't get what they wanted, their solution was always, well, sacrifice more. Up the ante. Give God a bigger sacrifice. Uh, but the Bible gives us another basis for approaching God. He says we're confident. We can be confident 
in approaching God. Why do we have confidence? Well, verse 19 sums it up. We have confidence as Christians through the gospel and approaching God because, verse 19 says, we are children of God. This is the paradigm shift that Jesus that Jesus opened up when he taught his disciples to pray. Remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he gave them a little script, and how does it start? Our Father. He was the one who invited his disciples and everyone who would follow them to pray and address God as Father. Nobody else taught that until Jesus came along. Nobody else, no, no other faith gave that a kind of an invitation. You think about this. When we are children of God and when God invites us to address him as Father, he's inviting a certain, a certain boldness there. Because, you know, one thing about kids is generally they're not afraid to make their needs known, right? They, they, they let you know what they need and, and they feel the freedom to make that approach. And, you know, kids tend to feel entitled. And kids are entitled. Kids are protected even under the law. No matter how annoying your kid is, you can't stop feeding that kid or you'll get arrested, right? <laughs> because kids are entitled to certain things. That's, that's the nature of being a kid. You know, there's nothing more off-putting than an entitled and adult, an, an adult who thinks that they're entitled to something without working for it, without paying for it, without earning it, without, without achieving it. But at the same time, there's nothing more natural than a kid who has entitlement, a kid who feels the boldness to, to let their needs be known and to make their requests, to, to present their requests to somebody. And the Bible's model for prayer for us is the model of children approaching a father. And that's the boldness, he says, we have. We have confidence when we approach God. Because if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we will have what we have asked of him. That's the confidence that you have. You know, occasionally, those of you who are parents know that sometimes you do say no to your kids. But even when you say no to them, you'd rather say yes, right? And uh, usually if you do say no, it's because there's, there's reasons that you can't quite explain in the moment why their request is not something that you can honor in that moment. But the, the promise of the Bible, the picture of the Bible, the picture of prayer that God gives us is a picture of God's beloved children coming and making their request to him. And if we remember that picture, then we'll be able to be confident in prayer. And that confidence is grounded again in our union with Christ. That confidence, it comes from the fact that we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ, verse 19. And that, that's what it, the Bible means when it says pray in Jesus' name. We don't come on our own merits. We don't come based on our own righteousness, but we come in Jesus' name. We come into the throne room of God the Father and we say, well, I'm with Jesus and he already made the final sacrifice. He already earned, earned this access, but I just want to come in his name and make this request to you. And if God is your father, then you can come with confidence. You do have connections. You're a child of God, and you're invited boldly to pray to him. So, so if you are if you can become a person of confident prayer, if you can become a person of absolute hope, you'll begin to live 
with confidence in this world, even with all the ups and downs that it has. But then the third thing I want to say, and this might be the most challenging thing, is, is he wants us to be confident about our limits. Look at verses 16 and following. He says, If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray to God, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, this is a pretty enigmatic passage. Uh, Nobody knows what he's talking about. There's an hour of my life I wish I could get back because I read all of the scholars and all of the commentaries on all of their speculation on what is John talking about, the sin that leads to death. And, and I read five different people who are all experts in language, experts in history, experts in that culture, and they all had different answers. And so I concluded none of them actually know what he's talking about. And, you know, sometimes the Bible is like this because, you know, when we read the Bible, we're entering it, we're overhearing a conversation between two people, and sometimes we don't know the context of the conversation, so, so we don't know exactly what they're talking about. And we tend to get uh, caught up in, in the stuff we don't know rather than to extract the principle. And there's a principle here that's pervasive in the New Testament, which is simply this, that love must have limits. And one of the things that the confidence of the gospel gives us is the unlimited grace of God gives us the confidence to live with limits in our relationships. Part of love is to set people free sometimes. And, and here's, here's the reality. You can't love unless you know how to love with limits. Uh, you know, we talked about mercy ministry, and you know, the fun part of mercy ministry is when you can help people who need help, help people who want help, and they're real responsive, and especially if you find somebody who's been off track, and you give them a hand, and you help them get back on track, and you see their life change because, because you were able to intervene in their life, and that's the fun part, and that's what we celebrate, and that's what makes us all clap and, and makes us proud, but, but there's, a, there's another side to mercy ministry, which is just as essential which is knowing how to say no, knowing how to say we're done, knowing how to say this isn't going to continue anymore and, and I just can't help you anymore. And unless you learn that side as well, you can't have a mercy ministry, I've discovered, because it's, it's a fraught industry to try to help people because sometimes they don't... Uh, they don't respond to our help. And, and that's hard because if you're the type of person who cares, if you're the type of person who's inclined to help, if you're the type of person who's always reaching out to those in need, then you're the type of person who's going to want to keep caring and keep reaching out and keep trying to help even after it's, it's productive. And so what he's saying here, John is saying, sometimes you can, it's okay to stop praying for a person. That's what he says. Sometimes you don't need to pray anymore because, because they're gone and you've got to move on and find someone else to pray for. But it's actually, like I mentioned, it's a theme, it's a thread that runs through the New Testament. This is a warning that Jesus gave continually to his disciples. And as he sent his disciples out on their mission, he said, well, if people don't listen to you, if a town won't listen to you when I send you to one of these towns, just shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town. Remember that? And then in Matthew chapter 7, he's talk, he says, don't cast your pearls to swine. Don't, 
uh, he, he's saying, you know, you've got to judge. Sometimes you can't keep offering things to people who are not responsive. To, you can't keep giving yourself to people who are not responsive. You can't keep helping people who don't want to be helped. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if an unbelieving spouse wants to leave a believing spouse, let them leave. Sometimes you just got to let people leave and accept that that's what you've got to do. And in several places in the pastoral epistles, Paul is advising Timothy on hard cases, and he, he says, here's what you do. Have nothing to do with them. Just let it go. Because we all have limits, and it's not our job to fix everybody. It's not our, not our job to help everybody. It's not our job to restore everybody. Sometimes you can't help somebody who doesn't want to be helped. You can't fix somebody who doesn't want to be fixed. You know, you can't have a relationship with somebody who doesn't want to have a relationship. And sometimes you, you've discovered you can't support somebody who doesn't want support. Like I say, if you're a merciful person, if you're a gracious person, this is a hazard of that, of, of that kind of uh, gift, of that kind of ministry. And if you have a heart to help people, all of us who have a heart to help people run into this reality continually. Um, and it's, it's a hard thing to do because, you know, we have an instinct to keep, to, to keep trying, you know, to stay committed, to continue to sacrifice, to continue to, to love. And, and, you know, if you've invested a lot in trying to help a person, you've, you have a friend who you're really close to, you have a sibling, maybe a brother or a sister, a child, a parent or a spouse, sometimes the hardest thing you'll do in your life is to say, this is done. This is over. This is all I can do, and I've got to let this go. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes this is, this is a place where I would, I would say if you're struggling with this, you definitely want to find people you can talk to who can give you an objective uh, perspective on what the right thing to do is. But the challenge I've observed in my own life, and this is one of my, my issues, by the way, so that's why I have a lot to say about it, but... but uh, but the challenge is that sometimes the biggest thing that keeps us from letting go is our own confidence in ourselves. Am I doing the right thing? Am, am I going to be okay if I let this relationship go? Am I, am I going to be able to accept that I let this situation go? And what John is saying here is you can have confidence to accept your limits. Part of loving is being able to let people go. And, uh, and, that, and that's of the essence of it. I used to be heavily involved in a ministry in Morristown, the town where I used to, to work, called uh, Market Street Mission. And it was a, 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 uh, the opposite of a celebrity rehab, let's just say. It was a last chance uh, drug and alcohol rehabilitation for, for the hardest of the hard cases and for people who had nothing. But it was a Christian ministry. It was a very grace-filled ministry, a very uh, a ministry populated by very devout Christians who were really committed to helping people who were who were uh, 
at the end of their rope. And uh, th they had a whole program they'd run people through that would rehabilitate their, their entire life and it would end with them getting a job, getting an apartment and being self-sufficient. And, and they'd have these big celebration-oriented uh, graduation ceremonies for, for the guys who, who went through this program. And I, I remember one, a guy stood up and he said, well, you know, I got kicked out of this program three times. I entered the program, I was a he was a drug addict, he entered the program three times and, and three times they kicked him out. And that, you know, what they said to him, they said, we're going to send you out for further research and development. If you can't, <laughs> if you can make it on your own, if you want to try to do that, uh, just, just go out and, and, and do it on your own. And, and uh, you know, that's a serious thing, to send a a person who's addicted to hard drugs back out onto the street because they might not make it. They might not survive. People die that way. And so it's a, it's a courageous thing to send someone out like that. But in this guy's case, the uh, story ended well because he kept coming back to the program re-enrolling and they'd let him re-enroll and, and, and re-initiate even though the enrollment process was very difficult. They, they let him re-enroll three times and finally he survived, finally he stuck, stuck through the program, finally he graduated and his life was rebuilt. And it just am amazed me, I was thinking that, I'm like, that was really tough of those guys, that was really courageous of those guys to be willing to send this guy out, knowing, knowing what he faced, knowing the risks that he would face. But it was also that toughness and that courage that ultimately led to his restoration. If he, they hadn't been willing to do that, there was no way the guy would have been restored and would have been able to graduate. So when we recognize our limits, it's a confidence in ourselves that we're going to be okay if we let this relationship go, if we let this situation go, but it's also a confidence in God, that God has a plan for these people and maybe our work is done, but God's work is not done and we need to continue to trust him. So we have confidence in our limits, confidence in our hope, confidence in prayer, and finally, confidence in the chaos. I love the inspirational way he wraps up this passage when he says, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now go in peace. <laughs> be warm and be filled. But I, I like that, well, because at least he's realistic. He's realistic about what to expect in this world, realistic about what this life has to offer. He says... Life is not easy. Don't expect things to be easy in this world. Things are not easy in our, our nation. Things are not easy in our families. Things are not easy in our cities. Things are not easy with our friends. Things are not easy with our personal lives. Our, our jobs are difficult. Our health is difficult. We have financial challenges. We have personal challenges. We have challenges on our block, challenges with our neighbor, challenges with our friends. But God is with you, and you can be confident in the midst of that. All of you people live in the city. I think a universal experience when we live in the city, you're walking home, and maybe you didn't mean to be out so late, but you end up being out later than you planned to, to be, and you're walking home, and uh, you see a group of people or an individual standing in the shadows, and you start to feel a little uncomfortable because... Uh, you know, you're, 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 you, feel, you feel vulnerable. You, you don't know what's going to happen. And that's, that's kind of like life. 
the whole world is under the control of the evil one. But the promise of the gospel is not that you and I get removed from the chaos, but that God is with us in the chaos. And even when we feel alone, the Bible assures us we're never alone. And he doesn't always extract us out of the world that's under the control of the evil one, but he promises us that he's with us in the midst of it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. He doesn't take us out of the valley, but he's with us in the valley. You don't worry about walking the streets of the city when you're with a group of 20 people. And you don't need to worry about living in this crazy world when God is with you. You are not alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the confidence the gospel can give us. And uh, Father, we're all shaken in our confidence in a lot of different areas, in a lot of different ways, for a lot of different reasons. But I pray that you would show us how the confidence of Christ can transcend these. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.